Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, y'all, it's Jacqueline. Before we start the show, I want to tell you about a new way to listen to Unscrewed. It's called Radio Public. You can get the free app on iPhone or Android, and it's great for finding and following podcasts because it has these curated podcast playlists from interesting people, kind of like mixtapes for podcasts. And I have created one myself with some of my favorite episodes of my favorite shows. You can listen to it right now at radiopublic.com slash unscrewed. Just visit radiopublic.com to download the app for iPhone or Android, and you can hear the shows I chose for you. All right, on with the show. Welcome to Unscrewed, the show that knows that real liberation includes sexual liberation. I am your host, Jacqueline Friedman, and this week we are going to talk about porn stigma and sex worker stigma. Specifically, some of you may have seen headlines recently. There's a new documentary series called Hot Girls Wanted, and there's been some talk about it exploiting sex workers and outing sex workers and using images without consent and those sorts of things. And the stakes are really high, right? Like at any time we talk about sex work and sex workers, the stakes are just really high to get it right because there's just so much misinformation and stigma and real people and their real lives are on the line. So to get into all of that mess, I found the perfect person. Susie Q has agreed to come on the show. She is the host of the fantastic podcast, The Whorecast, and also the director of policy and industry relations at the Free Speech Coalition, uh, which I'm sure she can explain better than I can, but it's basically the industry advocacy group for uh, the porn industry and, and adult entertainment workers. Susie, welcome on the show. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm so glad to have you. Did I get all of that more or less correct? More or less. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I will add a caveat that uh, the Free Speech Coalition is technically the trade association of the adult industry. So we have for 25 years uh, defended and protected through legislation, policy, litigation, as a last resort, of course, the, the rights and freedoms of those who work in the adult entertainment industry. So I want to ask you about all of that stuff. But as you know, first order of business on Unscrewed is always to do our lightning round of getting to know you questions. So are you ready? I'm so ready. All right. What's been making you the happiest this week? Oh, honestly, this morning I woke up and both my cats were in bed with me snuggling, which, okay, 
the second has been a recent addition. So as you, as with uh, you know polyamory, do you you introduce a new partner to the realm? Things could, you know you have to be on your best behavior and mm. pre- be prepared to do the hard work. Same with cats. Make sure everyone's feeling validated. There's enough like pets and snacks to go around and all those things. So I woke up this morning and also I live in Los Angeles where it's very hot. <clears throat> and that the hotter it gets, the less the cats want to cuddle is also a correlation. <laughs> so, sure. Um, it's been a little chilly the past couple of days. So I was ecstatic to wake up this morning with not one, but two cats in the same bed, snuggling hard. It even made me a little late to work, but it was totally worth it. Aww, that is delightful. <laughs> That's making me happy now. Good. What is the best sex advice you ever received? My answer is not particularly sex advice. It's more sex and relationship advice. And uh, it was when I was in college, I discovered that I was a non-monogamous person, not just non-monogamy, but, but polyamory. I, was, I, I loved multiple people. And when I realized this, it was not a sexual thing. I fell in love with uh, the person who I still continue to make plays and uh, art with to this day. And it's a very strong connection, the, the love that you feel with a collaborator, right? So that kind of made me start questioning all of these things about, you know, monogamous love. And it was very hard because I was in a monogamous relationship at the time. My partner at the time was not having any of that. She was a very straight laced monogamous lesbian. So I was sitting in my queer counselor's office just crying. You know, I had read The Ethical Slut and it made me cry more. I was like, this will never be my life. I'm so weird. And she just said to me, she's like, sweetie, I promise I was you at one point. And now every single one of my partners and my friends are also polyamorous and non-monogamous. And that will be you someday too. And I was like, you're lying. (laughs) It's true, but it is. Oh, and let me pepper in the worst sex advice I've ever received. I remember (laughs) so vividly I was 15 or 16 and a girl who was just one or two years older than me had started having sex with like a much older boy and was hate. It was it was very like not good. (laughs) You know, we were we were not doing good things with our, our teenage lives. And she said to me. Yeah, he told me that you should never ask permission and you should never apologize when it comes to sex. And I was like, even my little 15-year-old brain was like, that doesn't sound That right. sounds wrong. Yes. <laughs> oh, my God. That sounds abusive. All right. What's been making you the maddest or saddest when it comes to sexually related stuff in the world lately? This is re- very much related to the topic we're going to dive into today with Hot Girls Wanted. I'm really struggling with the ethics of journalists and sex workers. I have been on both sides of that equation. And... <sighs> I'm just continuously frustrated by, you know, things like, oh, we couldn't possibly pay you for your for your time, Miss Susie Q or Miss Sex Worker. That would be a breach of journalistic oh, ethics. Oh, that's right? complicated. Yeah. However, we would love to come on to uh, a porn set that you, that you're on, and you know, just kind of film, or we would love to come into your home and kind of film you while you're getting ready for an appointment. And w- would you mind just dropping your dress just one more time for the camera, sweetie? <gasps> that's what being the subject of journalism looks like as a sex worker for me and I know for a lot of other people. So when the line between erotic entertainment and journalism slash documentary filmmaking is as gray as it is with projects like Hot Girls Wanted and other things that I've been a part of, you really, I think journalistic ethics need to to examine themselves. Yeah, absolutely. What 
is the biggest sex myth you used to believe but don't believe anymore? Ooh, that's such a good one. Well, I think we all, to some extent, have an idea that sex is finite and that, especially as women, that our sexualities are this thing that can be broken or made bad or used up in some variety. Mm. And if you, you know, are not super judicious about, about <laughs> using that, um, then it'll, you know, you won't have enough anymore. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think that I, I continue to struggle with that because it's a, it's one of those cultural messages that I think gets ingrained, especially in women at a very early age. That's just like, you have a special pearl and no one, oh if God. someone takes it or touches it, it won't be special anymore and you won't be as much of a woman oh. or something. There's very little shit that makes me angrier than that whole idea. <laughs> All right. Last one. And I will say that on our last episode with Toby Hill Meyer, you were the answer to this question. What? Oh my gosh. I love Toby Hillmeyer. I met Toby Hillmeyer at my LGBTQ orientation on like the second day of college. No. Oh my God. I had such a great conversation with her in the last episode, which was called New Transerotic. Cool. So deep and interesting. She was fantastic. Anyway, so when smart. I asked her this question, you were the answer. And the question is, who's one of the bravest people you can think of who's working to unscrew the sexual culture in one way or another? I want to cry that Toby said me. That makes me so happy. Who is one of the bravest people? Ooh, I would say one of the bravest people that I know um, in that realm is Celeste Guap. She was a, a young woman who had been involved with several law enforcement officers and, and essentially been exchanging relationships and intimacy and things of that nature in exchange for, you know, amnesty and tips on how not to get oh arrested. It's like that. And when that ended, what, when she wasn't enjoying that amnesty any longer, she spoke out about it and revealed the incredibly disgusting corruption that it, that was the, those, those police jurisdictions. So as soon as that came to light, they tried to send, they did successfully send her away to a facility in Florida for uh, quote unquote, you know, substance abuse treatment. And she faced some charges there for fighting back. Oh my God. Yeah. Ah. So her lawyers flew over there, got her out of that situation. The case is still finishing up, but that teenage girl who spoke out against her or the perpetrators of her exploitation. Who were cops. Who were cops. Like that's, Oof, that is brave. She gets the Medal of Honor, hands down. Well, thank you for telling her story. I didn't know it. All right. You survived the lightning round. Yay! <laughs> so let's get into it. Let's start by talking about Hot Girls Wanted and then we'll sort of okay. expand out. So a few years ago, there was the original documentary, which was this very one note story about girls getting invited on Craigslist to become porn performers in Miami, I think. I have to admit I never watched it because I heard it was shite. <laughs> yeah. So I, I did watch the 2015 feature documentary. I actually watched it with a bunch of fellow porn performers in San Francisco. And I just remember being so struck by how different the narrative subtitles were from the footage I was watching. I was like, please give me this raw footage and I will tell you a very different story. Interesting. Um, tell me about that. 
so I want to be compassionate that like, because I had a good experience does not mean that everyone does right. Or that that's, or that my experience is more pertinent or, or anything. However, what I saw in the footage of the original hot girls wanted was a narrative that I resonates a lot with me, young women who grow up working class when presented with the sex industry as an option that gives the opportunity, and at least it did for me and it does for many other women, to hurl your way up the class ladder in a way that never seemed feasible via traditional wage slavery, especially if you don't have a college degree. And even if you do, my God, what does a liberal arts college degree mean in 2008, Mm -hmm. which is when around the time I started doing sex work, right? So when presented with this job that is really niche to, you know, young women, you know, how many other industries can young women, you know, ages 18 to 30 be the top earners? Right. That's what I saw. So with all the things that come with that, you know, the elation and the co- the camaraderie of, um, you know, doing that with other women, I saw that in Hot Girls Wanted. I saw a, um, a young woman who started out in the industry and then due to stigma from her boyfriend and her mother was taken back and put into wage slavery and said, you know, now you can work in a waitress for a fraction of what you were making in this other industry. That's a happy ending. Is it really? Mm. (laughs) I didn't see that. I didn't see that, but that's how the narrative subtitles were playing out. You know, you'd show girls hugging each other and taking selfies on their phone and saying, Oh my God, I just got a thousand more followers. What's happening? We're famous. Woo! And then like a subtitle that says like one in three women face online harassment or like something like that. You know what I mean? They weren't. <laughs> Which is true. We're like online harassment is a real thing. But that's not necessarily what the story, what was unfolding. Yeah. Um, so I saw a real disconnect between the filmmakers and the story they were intent on telling and the footage that they had captured. And so this new series is meant to kind of be an answer to those criticisms is my understanding, right? That they're trying to tell more complex narratives about women who do porn and and I think also men. Totally. So, you know, I say, you know, kudos to them for that. But it sounds like this new series has its own set of problems. It totally does. You know, I see this sometimes. People get past the idea that all sex work is inherently bad and all women who do it are somehow sullied into serve a scarlet letter. Once you get past that logic pattern, usually the next step is, well, I guess some porn is okay as long as, long as it's the right kind, as long as it focuses on women. Yeah, it should empower women, right? Right. And And those are all okay thoughts, but... And actually, I will give props to Hot Girls Wanted Turned On for the the very first episode of the six-part docuseries. You can definitely tell that the producers were like, wait a second, feminist porn, guys, feminist porn. And so they (laughs) they talked to Holly Randall and they talked to Erica Luss, these female directors who are intent on making sure that their models are respected and are well paid and blah, 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 blah. Um, which is great. We definitely want that. I worry that drawing a line in the sand between like feminist porn and ethical porn um, implies that there's an alternative, right? That uh, the other porn is not feminist and the other porn that doesn't label itself feminist or ethical is not. But what we're trying to do, especially at the trade association of the adult industry, we want it all to be that way. And just because a certain genre shows a female's face 
during the cum shot as opposed to a man's penis, that doesn't necessarily uh, translate to the ethics used on set, right? That's a genre question. And if you prefer that genre, if you prefer crashpadseries.com, which I love, they were my first uh, scene that I ever shot, to facialabuse.com, well, that's a bad example because they do, I think, show some unethical practices. But, you know, uh, hookuphotshot.com or hardcore pornography, the content doesn't, I don't think, um, necessarily correlate to the ethics used on set and and drawing that like okay this this type of porn is soft lit and appeals to right. my sensibility as a woman that means it's okay well i i actually hate the idea that like there is a sensibility that all women have right like obviously right. plenty of women like more hardcore stuff for sure but my concern when we start thinking about things like the tube sites and stuff is is more the aggregate not like what does anyone seen depict and this is sort of getting to the content question with yeah. the ethics question as a separate one. And I'm glad we're talking about both because I think that the labor ethics part gets not enough discussed. Right. But from a content perspective, my concern about the more mainstream tube outlets is just like this relentless sameness of it. Like there's this very narrow idea of what sex mm-hmm. is and it's very male center. You know, like that's my feminist idea about not like any one scene like the content is good or bad it's really about sort of in the aggregate what what is the story that's getting told about what sex is and who is it for absolutely that's a fair critique in this first section of the hot girls wanted turned on series when they profile Erica Lust, I think it's very interesting to draw these ideas into the conversation around ethical treatment of workers and things like that, as well as what is being shown as a filmmaker, what type of story are you telling with these erotic bodies? I think it's super interesting because they take Erica Lust, right? And they talk about how she wants to show you know, making love and people having sex, not performing in porn, but people having sex, right? So she casts professional male talent because you need professional male talent if you're going to get the shots that you need because it's a really hard job to do to keep your dick hard Mm -hmm. and perform under hot lights with a bunch of strangers around and come when it's time. So she hires this male talent and then she hires a completely newcomer, you know, someone who's never performed in porn before, this young woman who likes Erica's films but has not tried it, isn't totally sure. I'm sorry, how different is that from an amateur casting couch? I actually was listening to you say that, and I feel like, I mean, and I've watched some of Erica Lust's stuff and liked it. Yeah, but, it's beautiful. Uh, it's, be- it's beautiful, yeah, absolutely. But that makes me uncomfortable. And, and the idea that, I think that the line around professional versus real is kind of a weird, funny narrative. Like, it's super weird and funny. And I've like experienced it firsthand as a feminist porn performer that my, my authentic sexuality feminist porn does not want (laughs) like I do a lot of things that would be categorized as like male centric porny and like I just do that in my regular life when I'm having sex because that's how I like to have sex and that doesn't fit onto a quote-unquote feminist or you know whatever genre that type of porn sometimes is and I think it's really interesting what you see in that first episode is that what happens the young female performer doesn't seem to have a very good experience. I don't know if it's totally fair because the stories they tell in many of the other episodes are also not fair. Um, But I I, I kind of applaud them for critiquing the right, quote unquote, kind of porn and showing that these ideas are all very nice. Like we want to show real people having real sex. But I just hate like 
sex workers are real people. <laughs> right? <laughs> right. I, I actually feel like that narrative is so dangerous because yeah. it erases the labor questions and the rights of sex workers when we separate out, you know, porn performers in real people into separate categories. Yep. I think it's not meant this way, but I think it's really dehumanizing. Totally. To say, like, those are real people and and these people who have experience, who maybe understand professional standards, who've mm-hmm. done maybe the emotional work to know that they're okay with this. You know what I mean? Like, that they're, right. they're prepared. <laughs> that makes them less real. Like, I... Yeah, (laughs) I get the desire to have, you know, something that feels more authentic or less stagey or, you know, more like what it looks like when amateurs who are not at work are having sex. Right. I get that as an aesthetic to shoot for. I think that there should be porn that looks like that. But to call it real people, I just it makes my stomach churn. Oh, I'm so glad we we got deep into those questions because they come off a lot you know feminist porn ethical porn uh what's the the right kind what's the best practices and i think that you really do have to focus on on the labor of it and anything beyond that is an artistic choice again i think that we have to look at the industry overall and and the trend of what kind of content gets produced right like i would i like to see taken in the aggregate a much more diverse range of ideas Mm. about sex represented in mainstream porn or corporate porn or however we want to call it absolutely i would but i do think like like any given scene to say like this scene is feminist or not feminist becomes really complicated and difficult Mm. nigh on impossible i agree but i think that the labor stuff you know gets left out like way too often Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. So this time around, even though Rashida Jones and Netflix and the Hot Girls Wanted producers have have tried, I think, to show a more diverse range of experiences, what they have failed utterly to do is ensure that everyone featured in the content was consenting, which is something that like bare minimum that we need to do in the adult industry. So what's happened with Hot Girls Wanted is they've gone ahead and there was one performer in particular who participated, you know, via interviews and really, you know, signed the release, went all the way. But after receiving probing questions from the producers about um, subjects of her personal life she was not interested in sharing, including her family, she she pulled her involvement. She said, I I don't want to be involved in this anymore. Please cut me from the footage. 
So she made an agreement with her boyfriend and the producers that they would shoot more video of him and cut her from the project. That didn't happen at all. Her legal first name and middle name was shown on her footage of her Facebook page, which has now led to all kinds of nightmare privacy violations. Not only that, but the producers also went ahead and used footage of different cam sites just like scrolling through people's uh, webcam shows and webcam profiles. Now, did they think to go ahead and ask any of those women if they could use their images on a Netflix platform, which don't get me wrong, like a webcam platform has a very large reach, but I would definitely venture to say that Netflix has a larger one. And just because you are out as a webcam performer on a webcam site doesn't mean that you're ready to be out to the world, including your aunt and your uncle in Omaha Mm -hmm. via Netflix. And so showing people's faces, bodies, names, even their performer names, and then particularly legal names in this other instance, it's despicable. And it really shows a complete lack of understanding of your subject's humanity. Right. And and what they're saying in their defense is everything we did was legal, but I feel like that's an inadequate response. I agree. I agree. You you take the same idea, you know, and and put it over to the adult industry. So it's not famous movie stars backed by a billion dollar corporation. Um, it's someone from the adult industry using people's images without their consent and profiting off of it. Like people would freak out. I wonder if they would in the sense that I wonder if the culture at large really cares about porn performers if it was just just regular women and not porn performers oh real women (laughs) oh Oh, i see what you're saying got it okay i think it was the author of the tits and sass article that came out drew attention to like hey rashida jones and the producers of hot girls wanted turned on you guys have such a good plan. Like, okay, you want to help a marginalized population. So make a documentary that totally like ignores their experience and exploits them. Then when they come after you and critique you, you know you'll have amnesty because they're just a bunch of whores and you're a famous movie star with tons of access to wealth. So it's going to be fine. <sighs> right? I mean, like they gave an exclusive interview to Variety, the, the two directors of the film, basically saying like, uh, these girls... I mean, they outed themselves. Like, we just used some footage of them. No one knew that it was about sex work, except it's a documentary about sex work, you idiots. (laughs) Like, oh, my God. And then they went ahead and sort of, like, drew conclusions. Or, like, I don't know. I think the public should be asking themselves if they're just trying to get more famous. Oh, no. Yeah, just full-on victim blame. Victim blame really works if you're um, the victims or sex workers. So good job, Rashida. I knew you were bad news the moment you started dating Jim in the office. I'm just saying. Well, especially because I believe, I actually really do believe, and maybe you think I'm naive and you can tell Mm -hmm. me that. I think that they meant well in the sense that they think that they are helping expose a way in which women are made vulnerable, right? There's a rescue impulse here, which I'm very critical of that rescue impulse in general around women and sexuality and, and sex workers in general. But I do think that they probably even in their hearts of hearts, think that they are helping. I would agree. And, and I think that that's a real problem with like rescue impulses. In yeah, general. I want to talk about that, about sort of like totally. the rescue impulse when it comes to sex work and how all sex work gets conflated into trafficking and exploitation. Mm-hmm. and For sure. So I think that when dominant 
feminist narratives and efforts look at marginalized communities and come from a place of of savior and uh, rescue, we're just perpetuating colonization there. That's not a movement. (laughs) That's people with privilege dictating the choices of people with with less privilege. Well, and assuming you know what they need also. Yes. I mean, the, the click moment for me about this came, gosh, probably 15 years ago now. Way back in the day, I was working for a feminist bookstore and I hosted a discussion with Audacia Ray, mm. then of Spread Magazine. And I was like a little do-gooder feminist. <laughs> of course. And I was, I basically was like, I think that if all things were equal economically, that like most women wouldn't want to do sex work, you know, isn't that a bad thing? You know, like basically mm-hmm. that sort of argument. And she was like, well, maybe or maybe not, but like we don't live in that this world, <laughs> that world yeah. yet. And in the meantime, like you have to listen to the people who are affected by the issue, right? So like yep. you have to center sex workers and what they say they need and want by and large is like labor rights, right? Like yep. better working conditions. Decriminalization. Um, decriminalization. Exactly. It literally just was like one of those moments where your entire brain readjusts. I was like, oh like that's so crystal clear to me suddenly like yeah maybe in a much more economically just world there'd be fewer sex workers and they'd charge more and had better terms i don't know like it'd be fun to find that out because it would mean more economic justice right <laughs> like, right absolutely but we don't live in that world right now you know there'd be a lot of people, fewer people working at mcdonald's too exactly yeah and i think that when we talk about uh, sex work and, and feminism that we we can't divorce from the fact that we live in a world with racial injustice economic injustice and and those issues aren't separate they are intersecting always and so when we do this work, we have to listen. Like, what do I say to people? Take several seats and read several books, especially yes. a white person, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like also that rescue impulse is othering, is in fact mm-hmm. also dehumanizing. It's saying like, I'm good and safe and and powerful over here, right? So there's right. also a, a feeling of it that's about reassuring oneself that we could never be in the position of the person we're trying to rescue. Totally. And I think it's so funny when people are like, oh, well, I could never do X, Y, and Z sex work, blah, blah, blah. What we're doing there is just saying, you know, I am this way, you are this way. And we don't do that in other prof- Like, I don't look at a doctor or a surgeon or a plumber and say like, oh my God, I could never do what you do. I mean, I do in the sense like I would never want to be a doctor. I really would no. hate being a doctor and I would hate everything required of me except for maybe the like interpersonal interactions. Right, um, right. But there's no stigma of like, you know, like, oh, I would never be a doctor. Therefore, I look down on doctors or doctors need rescuing. Like, Right. It doesn't happen. So... I want to talk about, like, what are the stakes for sex workers of being outed or used non-consensually? Like, this stigma that comes along with engaging in any kind of sex work, what are the stakes? 
Totally. If listeners or yourself are not currently aware of this really important day that happens every year called December 17th, the day to end violence against sex workers. I've been around for several years now. There are events that happen all over the world. And there's a list generated just like the Transgender Day of Remembrance. There's a list generated every year of sex workers who lost their lives to sex worker stigma. And it's dozens, sometimes hundreds, depending on the year. Uh, We read the names at vigils and events So every year I go through this list of names and the horrific ways in which these people were often murdered or met their end. Really violent stuff that happens all over the world. And the reason we have December 17th, it was primarily inspired by, it was founded by Annie Sprinkle and Stacey Swim, the Sex Worker Outreach Project about 10 years ago now. But it was around the time that Gary Ridgway, who was the Green River Killer up in uh, the Northwest, was arrested and the statement that he made, he he killed dozens and dozens, I think 60 something sex workers. And he said, I chose sex workers because I knew I could get away with it. Mm -hmm. I knew that people wouldn't come looking for them. So I need people to understand that the stakes here are incredibly high because as in the world that we live in right now, people see us as easy targets. And so People know that the stigma facing us follows us in the media and when we interact with law enforcement, when we interact with the justice system, it's everywhere. And the odds are stacked against us when we face violence. So many sex workers cannot go to the police. Even me, I feel like I am really reaping a ton of privilege from the top of the hierarchy. And still, when I'm in a situation that... I feel like I am vulnerable, I definitely think twice about calling the cops. That is way far down my list of people that I'm going to call. And that has impact also on labor conditions directly, right? So that that porn producers who do want to be exploitative of workers, and we know that's a real issue, and and, and lots of my listeners will have followed the whole a story about James Dean a few years ago, you know, like th- these are real issues. Like not every company that produces porn is ethical. And if you are stigmatized, you're also going to be less likely and less able to blow the whistle on poor labor conditions. Absolutely. I really hope that the dominant culture's tide is beginning to turn as more and more of us are naked on the internet and the line between sex work and selfie stick, you know, become more and more gray. Um, I hope that people understand that, you know, being naked on the internet or accepting money for something that you do with your body, which is something that we all fucking do, even if it's not sex work, it's sitting in an office or it's digging a ditch or it's driving a car, you are renting your body for money. So until we all realize that that's essentially the same, um, I think that we are really going to continue to see this nonsense, but I hope it's... It's reaching its conclusion soon. And I also think that we'll get a better porn ecosystem if we destigmatize it as well, because it'll be there'll be less stigma going into, you know, all matters of porn production. And I think that part of why it's hard sometimes for feminist or indie porn or ethical porn, whatever category we want to break it down into, to flourish is because we don't recommend porn to each other like most of most of most of everyone right like right. You, you might say oh i saw this movie and i loved it right like that whole word of mouth thing like doesn't fucking happen with porn except for in very small communities very niche mm-hmm. communities because there's so much stigma about even admitting you watch porn especially for women so 
I feel like it redounds like there are just so many levels of like everyone's life would be fucking better if we could recognize that sex workers are full human people. That's something I really encourage people to do. So if you are listening and you want to help, like, of course, you can support the Free Speech Coalition or support SWAP or listen to the forecast or whatever. But I think the most important thing that you can do is to have conversations and come out about your consumption. Come out as a adult industry consumer because you guys have the least to lose. Nobody's going to come to your door for the most part and stalk you based on your porn consumption. They are going to do that to me and my colleagues based on our involvement in the industry, like for sure. But the next time someone makes a dead hooker joke, tell them it's not fucking funny. Mm-hmm. You know, do things like that. The next time someone comments on someone's outfit and says that it's slutty, why would you wear that? Question, push back on that. Because that's really, I think, what's going to turn the tide is people with the most privilege and the least to lose taking just a couple steps towards being in solidarity with sex workers. And pay for your fucking porn. Also that. <laughs> Start by admitting to yourself that you're watching porn and that you value it and then pay for it. And that also is a good place to start just shifting your whole mindset about it, as well as making it possible to produce a much better porn ecosystem. If you pay for the stuff you like, there'll be more of the stuff you like. Yay! Susie Q, thank you so much for coming on my show. Thank you. Where can people follow your fantastic work? Well, you can... Keep up to date with all of the battles that we're fighting at the Free Speech Coalition at freespeechcoalition.com. You can become a member. You can support our work for as little as five bucks a month. Um, If you're already giving money to Amnesty or Human Rights Coalition or wherever you give money to, consider, you know, throwing five or ten bucks our way as well. Um, We are a very uh, small run organization. It's really only about me and Eric Paul Loya in the office. (laughs) We're doing most (laughs) of the work. Um, So please do that. You can follow us on Twitter at FSC Army and you can follow my work at Whorecast, thewhorecast.com. You can also find me on Instagram. I'm the real whore next door. Sweet. And you can follow me at Jacqueline F, J-A-C-L-Y-N-F, on Twitter and Facebook, on Instagram. I am Jacqueline Effable. And you can find all my writing and books and speaking engagements and stuff on my website at JacquelineFriedman.com. Friedman is F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N. You can find this podcast wherever fine podcasts are available. iTunes, Acast, Stitcher. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Uh, And while you're in there, give us five stars. Give us like a one or two sentence review. It makes such a big difference in terms of helping other folks find the show. Uh, The show is produced and edited by yours truly. Our in and out music is by The Pink Tiles. And our cover art is by Nicole Dodonna and was developed in a collaboration with The Establishment, who also developed the sound cues. Until next week, I am Jacqueline Friedman, wishing you safe and happy sex lives. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.
Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.